Welcome back to Repod with Professor Andy Mia. Except we're not Repod anymore, we are Engage. Our newly rebranded podcast sits alongside our massive portfolio of engagement activities that are happening over the academic year. And today we talk about research impact as part of a new season of interviews where we talk to people that have submitted case studies that went through the research excellence framework over the last few years. And I'm really excited to be talking to Apostolos today, whose work on digital transformations is absolutely remarkable. Enjoy. Hello, Apos. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andy. Nice to see you. It's great to be here on what's really been quite an exciting week with the release of the results of the Research Excellence Framework. Lots of very happy people at Salford University. Absolutely. And, uh, and this is a, a fantastic way to celebrate that by talking about some of the impact that we have. And this is the second episode in a series of videos where we'll talk about our research impact. It's wonderful to have you here in part because I think it's something that we haven't really discussed too much in the past. It's something that has, I think, been overlooked to talk about how much of an impact we've had. And, uh, and this case study is a wonderful way to do that. So tell us a bit about your background and uh, what is it you do at the university? Great. Thanks for having me here, by the way. It's, it's really nice uh, to be able to explain a few things. So, so I'm a professor in uh, computer science and uh, we, I lead the research group, the Pattern Recognition and Image Analysis of the PRIMA, for a better catchword, research lab, which uh, with some colleagues, we, have, uh, we try to solve real world problems. It's an area of AI, computer vision is, an, is a more niche area of computer vision in general that we, we have uh, tried different applications, but uh, where we excel, and this is the, the topic of today as well, is the analysis of, of documents or extracting information from documents. So images, scans, and so on, yeah. And it's a huge amount of work to be doing. So tell us, where did it begin for you? What was your sort of origin into this area? So it was, it was back at the University of Manchester when I did my PhD many years ago, where I wanted to do something practical. I loved solving using computers and computer science techniques to solve something, a real world problem. Plus, uh, I'm fascinated by making data available to people, information empowers people. So doing anything to help make those, uh, you know, help people have information available is great. So working on documents i started originally with other type of images like medical image analysis and so on but this this new area of document image analysis was coming up and it was fascinating to see what can be done so with the support of my supervisor then i, I started working on this there was only one scanner in the whole university and i could <laughs> book some time on it sounds like the old uh, mainframes that people were working on right and uh, and then it grew from there I went to the University of Liverpool, continued, started building this uh, Prima group uh, there, got some PhD students and some research projects, and then it continued, but really grew when I came to the University of Salford, where this, this type of research is, uh, is very much valued, uh, research that has a real world impact. And we had the, the support of the university in, in many ways, not only scientifically, but uh, in commercial ways, we license software, we we have a wide we were able to have this wide impact through uh, this work there so 
in a nutshell, we make unreadable data into operable information. Mm. So any data that is not readily accessible and operable by a computer, right? So you have a lot of AI, machine learning, needs a lot of data to work on, to learn and do something useful. But this data is not, if it's an image of it, you take a picture of something, it's just pixels, mm -hmm. right? So it's our job to, to make, uh, to extract this information. In this case, it could be uh, text, it could be numbers, it could be anything useful, understand it, and then put it in a way where all these AI techniques will work on it, or people will read it. And so, that sounds like quite a complicated task, not least because the volume of data that you're, you're actually working with, with is huge. So, so the process is, is developing the software itself. Is that the sort of starting point? Yes. So we have a fantastic collaboration with some colleagues. Uh, just a couple is uh, Stefan Fletcher and uh, Christian Klausner over the years. So we developed uh, new formats, new methodologies, new software new workflows to be able to do this. We worked with fantastic partners like the British Library, major European libraries, national libraries, where they have massive digitization programs. And we learned a lot about how, how to make the tools from being scientifically novel into practically useful mm. at a large volume, right? We're talking about millions of, of pages of newspapers, of books, of uh, Family records, we work with organizations like Family Search in the US, which are the biggest uh, genealogical uh, information uh, organization and so on. And it sounds to me like this involves a, a large amount of collaboration. And I suppose all those organizations that you've worked with in developing the case study, they were all, as you mentioned, very much in the process of trying to figure this out. So was there a lot of international work going on in this field at the time you began or were you one of the early people to sort of start doing this? How did you sort of get into the space where people were trying to figure this out? In the beginning, it wasn't, uh, there, there were a few companies in, uh, in Europe like Siemens and so on, who were mm -hmm. trying to do something. And then it was the United States Postal Service in the US that were doing things like this yeah, document analysis. But uh, later we were very, lucky i would say we were at the right place or we were prepared to be at the right place uh, for a lot of cultural heritage uh, funding by the european union so mm. the major players the the main uh, uh, content holding institutions as, as i mentioned the british library dutch french german austrian several national libraries with uh, pioneering uh, digitization programs uh, started collaborating together. We were invited in those consortia and uh, we developed, we started developing the software, which eventually after several projects matured and we now make available to, to different people. And I suppose there's at least two main sort of purposes. One is to make the materials sort of publicly available, but I imagine a big part of it is also the internal value to the organizations involved. So. So do they sort of do a whole range of sort of analysis of the data? I mean, how is it being used once they've digitized? That's, that's brilliant. Yeah. So the, our latest uh, collaborator and, and a major collaborator of ours is the Office for National Statistics. And, uh -huh. and there we have uh, an, a new addition to our team. Uh, that's, uh, you know, it's Justin Hayes, who is a population uh, statistician. 
and is, uh, he understands the data as well. So we go from end to end from the actual hard copy through digitization, scanning and analysis of the image and extraction of the data and then understanding the data and modeling it in a way which is useful first to the organization and then to the people. So the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, uh, have started digitizing the census information from, for England and Wales, starting from 1921, 31, 41, there wasn't census, uh, 51, 61, and so on. The, the rest is digital, so that they can be able, they, they are able to access this information for their own analysis. And uh, just just before Easter, they published the first analysis of 1921, so 100 years wow. ago, how people were living, what were the social norms, and uh, you know, this this is so comprehensive government uh, gathered accurate statistical data that is so valuable and of course it's publicly available so uh, in addition to to that more specific uh, data which we can talk about later it has its own challenges because it's talking about numbers not just uh, text uh, uh, we helped a lot uh, the newspaper digitization and other books digitization from uh, from libraries and, and mostly in european uh, national libraries i mean what i find most extraordinary about the work is that it's it's giving us a different way of, of understanding history. I mean, it's, it's profound, isn't it? It is. Uh, we, we had a little pilot of a, it was an anniversary at the university, right? Uh, uh -huh. A couple of years or three years ago and so on. And, and we, we had a look at data from uh, the 1961 census. And, and it was amazing to see that, I mean, for, for people uh, of younger generations, we don't understand that people didn't have fixed baths or they didn't have toilets inside the houses or running water or running hot water, definitely not. And there's it's such a, it's a recent, uh, well, facility that we have all this. And it's fascinating looking through the census, uh, what has changed over the years and, and how multicultural our society was mm. forever and how you know it's, it's fantastic insights you get by reading all this because it was so hidden there were a few mm. copies available in some public libraries and somebody had to go and read it there couldn't even uh, take a picture of it and read it at home so it's it's fantastic to have all this data and you can compare it across years and across regions I mean, when I think about the impact of this research, it's not just in realizing something so valuable for an organization or for a community, but actually it's providing access to information that for the entire future, we would see potentially differently because with every generation, they may look upon the data with a different set of eyes and make different inferences or, draw, or ask different questions of the data. So it feels like the impact of what you've done just will go on forever. <laughs> It's, um, it's, it's humbling and it's also very much motivating to work with these partners and, and this kind of data and feeling you add a little bit, a grain of sun into the information out there in the world. It, it, is, it really is. Yeah, and it must be, I mean, one aspect of that is also being able to sort of manage the legacy of that research project or the ongoing work that you're doing because we often, in, in research impacts case studies, we sort of talk about how you evidence, how you capture and it feels like with this, I mean, obviously you can articulate what you've done and the organizations involved, but all those little sort of ripples of what you've done are just going to be huge, really, I think. Yes. Uh, so 
I mean, uh, we, we we had a large impact as evidenced by the case study and is very favorable outcome uh, as marked by the graph. But uh, yeah. we're still at the early stages because all this information uh, is either at the early stages of becoming public and people haven't really discovered it yet and it will mushroom in, into significance there. But also a lot more information is, is in the process of uh, becoming public. Yeah, and actually on that, we've got one question that's come in from John from LinkedIn, asking whether there are any examples from the case study yet. Is um, the projects that have been developed, are the materials now already available or is it still very much in development? So we have uh, the first results out. So ONS have published on, uh, we, we had a post on uh, LinkedIn and uh, mm -hmm. I did uh, share it. Uh, so it's also on the ONS blog the first okay. analysis of the, from the 1921 uh, census and then there are previous information uh, is, instances where I can, I can provide uh, more but if you, if you search you will see a lot uh, yes and i know we certainly will there. as a university be sharing a lot more of our impact case studies over the coming weeks to to help people see what we've done but also to make all this stuff accessible so that people can discover it i mean the family genealogy aspects must be fascinating to do i mean the histories there that are you know, perhaps undiscovered by people yet. And again, it just makes me think, gosh, the impact on, on people that discover this. We often sort of see stories of people learning about their past and they're just, uh, you know, amongst the most moving experiences I think people can have. But um, but certainly working with organisations like the British Library as well, it's a, it's a mammoth task, really. It is. Uh, I mean, in terms of the genealogy, it's, it's very interesting because uh, the National Archives had a collaboration with Find My Past and digitized mm. the individual forms that each household filled in in 1921. And now we're telling the, the backstory of that, right? So all the, the household forms are available now from the National Archives and my, Find My Past. But you can see your individual kind of uh, grandfathers or great grandfathers kind of story, but but you need the background of, of the whole region or town or, or country and so on. So we also work apart from the ONS, we work with with Family Search, as I said, which is a U.S. based, is the largest uh, genealogical uh, organization, which have billions of family records from all over the world, from from China, from uh, Latin America, everywhere, right? And uh, they have about uh, 30,000 volunteers which, which use our software. Uh, they license it and they give it to the volunteers to actually tag every single name of people. And, uh, you know, whether it's the father or, or the son of somebody or, or the mother and, and so on. And so it's very nice interlinked kind of uh, legacy from this, right? That, uh, you know, they keep building. Now, you mentioned also the British Library. Mm. Uh, an interesting aspect is that uh, a lot of information is, is just not possible to be processed with the standard software that you can go out and buy. Right. And uh, two exciting examples are the Arabic manuscripts of early scientific uh, discoveries, right? So the, the, mm -hmm. there are several, several pages of uh, of this fantastically illustrated and written handwritten examples of uh, scientific uh, uh, manuscripts in arabic and and it's just we, so we teamed up with the british library and if anybody hears and, and has interest in this we're setting up a challenge we we started it uh, some years ago and we're going to rerun it to see if anybody can actually recognize those documents oh, wow. by computer and we had another challenge as well 
for the early printed Indian uh, language documents, which are 200 years of worth uh, in the British Library of documents, of early books and, uh, and printed documents. And, and just current technology just doesn't work. Mm. So it's an open challenge to all companies and research groups to to try and find the solution. So there's another way we, we can try and help apart from digitizing ourselves. Now, in terms of the process, there must be, I suppose, is there some manual aspect at the start of it all, like in terms of scanning? How, what, what does that process involve exactly? I guess it varies, perhaps. So so nothing nothing like this, which involves a lot of human judgment and, mm. uh, and knowledge is fully automated, right? So yeah. the key ingredient to, to have something which is effective, but also uh, efficient at high volume, because we're talking about millions of, of pages here, right? Is to involve the humans at the right level mm. uh, of involvement, right? So take all the repetitive tasks and whatever the software is great at doing, and keep the humans minimally involved, but uh, with an intervention where they are at the best, right? So they exercise the judgment. So it's a semi-automated uh, process, but it, it changes according to the project and the difficulty as to what involvement the, the humans have. The idea is to have as minimal involvement as possible, but you don't want to be making mistakes uh, that cost uh, a lot later as the data is yes. not accurate but you still need to involve uh, humans. Humans are great uh, in terms of uh, judgment and the knowledge, the background knowledge they have in understanding some things. And with a small intervention, you can, you can get the whole interaction going very well. And, and I imagine just to bring it back to basics for me, it's, it's things like having to turn pages in books. I mean, what is the role of that human in the process? <laughs> oh yeah, the, the role of the human process starts, first of all, with um, deciding what is the best, uh, what are the best parameters for capturing. Mm -hmm. uh, so the different documents. So you have, uh, on the one hand, you have uh, books, uh, very early books were of such high quality because very few were produced on, on linen based, uh, what we call paper, right? So th these are very nicely preserved and so on. And, and, and also you need to turn them by hand, as you say, and, and all this. Then you have on the completely opposite uh, side of the spectrum, you have newspapers, which were only produced and meant to, to last for a day or a week, right? So the worst possible paper, because you throw it away, with the worst possible ink and uh, ink distribution and so on. But, but people are fascinated by newspaper stories. So all the libraries are prioritizing newspapers for capturing them. And they, and they have run out of time. So the British Library has uh, many, many millions of, of pages of uh, newspapers which are crumbling. And they are digitizing day and night and wow. still running out of time to digitize them all. So these need special handling as well. And there are different parameters in the, in the image characteristics and in the scanning uh, uh, apparatus and, and so on. So this is, this can be done you know by by operators and so on and then these images uh, are automatically uh, improved automatically uh, we, we detect where is the text where, where are the illustrations we try to, to do several processes uh, to prepare it for for whatever scenario people want you know if you just want to search for a word uh, uh, you know, like you do an index uh, search, you go a Google search, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you put th two or three words 
and you find the pages you want. Okay, that's the simplest scenario. So there's not a lot of work involved uh, for this, right? As long as you have most instances of a word on a page, that's, that's fine. But progressively, we talked about uh, AI and machine learning, right? So you want to say summarize or understand the, con the concepts or the, the context of, the, of a newspaper article, uh, understand, go deeper. So if you want to do a higher level of analysis and understand the meaning of the sentences, you need a much higher uh, quality of digitization. Mm -hmm. So that you need to involve a lot more processes of understanding the content, not just extracting individual characters from, from a page. So humans, there are different workflows, in other words, with different goals. And very often when you talk about millions of pages uh, involved, uh, economic considerations uh, take uh, place uh, center stage for government organizations like the British Library, for example, and and, and most libraries, right? They yeah. only have uh, 100 million pounds to spend. Uh, <laughs> that's, I said only? I said, yes, but if, if you think about uh, how many millions of pages we have, yes. it's, it's less than a P per page or something. Yeah. So that's not enough, yeah. I mean, what's really amazing to hear, and I guess one of the questions I want to sort of ask you is really what is the sort of future of this? Because it, it sounds very much like a system that would want to be acquired by Google or someone like that, because oh. I know that you know there's that, that desire to sort of occupy the space where you have huge international scale projects, which are of sort of great societal significance. So I think it's interesting, to, particularly from a researcher's perspective, to understand that trajectory of a project that maybe is software based that then is trying to fulfill a sort of social mandate and how do you sort of wrestle with that as a kind of trajectory of the work it's interesting because uh, we we try to produce tools which can be used in multiple ways right so we can we can use the software to digitize things in projects that that we have say right so making available the data from the census or from from books for for people and so on and uh, the ONS uh, have already uh, made the data public, which researchers can, can actually use, right? But w the tools that we have created help other people to create their own uh, digitization uh, tools and uh, workflows and, and so on as well. And moreover, the tool, the, we have evaluation, quality evaluation tools, which, and performance evaluation uh, tools, which companies like like Google they have they have done and uh, other people other major organizations who, who create tools themselves can actually evaluate how efficient and effective their tools are so we contribute in the development uh, as well so Google we evaluated uh, Google's um, deep learning based uh, recognition engine for for text uh, some years ago and uh, we help them evaluate the different iterations. Uh, Google has a great uh, research team for, for this. Of course, they, they do many, many things. This is only a small part of what the Google conglomerate uh, does. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to, to be able with the same tools and keeping them alive and through the licensing income we have from from mm. these tools we we plow back everything into developing those tools further for people to use and uh, and they have been used by by several as i said organizations to improve their tools organizations to help them with a digitization strategy so 
a part of the social uh, aspect of it is, say, the British Library wants to digitize a, a fixed amount of material because of budget limitations or, or you know, they have to prioritize. Uh, they have so much material that they mentioned that if they, they digitize day and night, as I said, right? And if they wanted to have everything digital from their content, they, they calculate they should have started about 50 PC. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they keep receiving hard, hard copies for many, many things, right? Even, even today, where we, we produce uh, digital-born documents, they're often in weird and wonderful formats from different desktop publishing software where it's more efficient to just uh, scan and recognize the, the text than, than trying to figure out all the, the, the software, the format. Uh, so they have to prioritize what uh, they, they will make available and is most interesting and socially uh, useful uh, for the public of the country, right? So they can decide, our tools play some role in them deciding what is uh, possible to digitize with high efficiency, what is the cost of digitization for those things, so they can create the most material in digital form in the shortest uh, amount of time, so they can plan the digitization effort. I was going to ask you about that, because I think it's really interesting as we sort of move into what we think is a, a kind of digital age where everything, therefore, is sort of kept and it's, it's already archived in some digestible, accessible way. It sounds very much not the case. Uh -huh. Scanning documents that have been created digitally is hilarious, I think. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. I mean, Google did that themselves, right? Uh -huh. uh, they said that, uh, OK, so it was some years ago that uh, about 40 percent of the of the material uh, they needed to just rescan, uh, mm -hmm. rather than it's easier to chop the spine of a of a book and uh, and scan it and have it in the format that you that you can produce and manage, rather than decode uh, formatting plus human intervention of editorship and different macros somebody defined on uh, LaTeX or some other desktop publishing software. Yeah, it's it's easier. What you see effectively on the on the image is what you get, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful case study, and I think it's fantastic to see the the range of impacts that it's having across the social sector, really. And it's uh, it's wonderful that we have it as part of our research community. I wonder. It sounds like this can scale up beyond your imagination, really. It's, it feels like the the sky is the limit in terms of the organisations that need to do this. But is it? What's the trajectory from this point on? What's happening it's next? true. It's, uh, we, we are relatively, if you think about it, a small team and uh, our remit has, has changed from, uh, in other words, lifting the information of the printed documents, say for the Office for National Statistics, right? So mm -hmm. once we lift the information, we have the, the means using software to validate it, right? So imagine in uh, 1921, say, for example, when they were extracting, uh, they were collecting all this information and printed it in, in different uh, tables, numerical tables, um, they were not able to validate if the information was correct, right? So all the, all the people of uh, Manchester, if you add them with the nearby towns, would they make up all the, all the larger area kind of uh, people? So several checks were able to do and validate the data as well. So data validation uh, is now possible, not only extracting the information, but formulating it in a way which is uh, structurally more uh, useful 
as well as uh, valid. So you know the data is correct, right? So a lot of people, I must tell you this, right? With the best care and attention you can expect from the nation's uh, statistical agency, right? The government statistical agency, there are a small number of errors, right? There, there is. And uh, we found that, uh, for example, in, uh, in, some, in two or three places in the UK, because of a typesetting error, uh, the numbers of men were lower than the numbers of women, uh, no. significantly so. Usually, the, at that no. time of the of the of those years, uh, female kind of members uh, were were more than than males, but s substantially fewer. Right. So there were a lot of theories of why this happened. Right. Is it heavy industry? Was it the war? And a lot of theories, I'm sure people published papers, right? And, and we discovered by doing the sums that one digit was missed out in the typesetting. Wow. Right? And uh, now we, we, we have this and the, and the Office for National Statistics have this information, right? And we have correct data to, to base any analysis of, say, policies that worked or didn't work over the years and, and so on. And, and to go back to your question, what is next? So similar, there's, there's masses of data which is waiting to be made available. Uh, normal OCR, you can do stuff with your phone nowadays, right? But for simple documents, right? But if you go about more structural, structured uh, data, say numerical tables, which are very, very useful, right? Imagine company information, financial information. You have, uh, as I said, with a statistical uh, agency type of information. Uh, a, a lot of uh, complex uh, information is printed that humans can understand, but not readily uh, processable by computer. So there's masses of that we, we would like to get into and also extend the usefulness of data. Well, it's, it's a remarkable case study and I think has done particularly well in the Research Excellence Framework results from this week. And uh, yeah, fantastic to hear about the work. It sounds like you've got a real task on your hands going forward. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to see all the different people helping out and the sort of calibre of the partners that are involved. And uh, I look forward to seeing how this develops in the future. But it's great to see just how much of how much of that research is making a difference, not just to those companies, but also to the public good as well, which is, I think, a big part of what we love to do at Salford. So thanks so much for joining me today, Apos, to talk about this case study. And we look forward to seeing how it goes in the future. Thank you very much. And we, we should catch up at some point in the future and revisit all this. That would be great. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You, look forward to it. Take care. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Well, what a fantastic episode. We have many more of these coming up. We'll probably drop one a week over the next term. So stay tuned for more episodes of Engage, the Salford University Research and Innovation Podcast with me, Professor Andy Beer.